going on, everybody? Welcome. Friday morning. Uh, those of you watching on YouTube, my hair is uh, showing. <laughs> showing a little crazy. I was like, I got a haircut. I don't know about you, but I'm like a child now that I don't have to go into the office and uh, be a serious person. Other than, I guess, on this podcast, but let's face it. No offense to, to you guys out there, but I don't know how many like people care about the um, aesthetics of this. I got a lot more, a lot more listens than views. So that helps. Um, you know, they say a face made for radio was an old thing. I have, a, I have a haircut made for podcasting as opposed to YouTube streaming. Uh, but anyway, let's talk week six NFL. Uh, I did not write a weekly commentary this week, but I do have some things I want to talk about. I kind of squeezed in some commentary on quarterback rankings uh, what's going on with the ringer. I know I've talked about Ruiz and the ringer a few times, but I don't know. I just think it's a very illustrative example of rankings, what goes wrong, why you can't explain it away necessarily in a great way, why you have to have some sort of systematic way of doing it in order to get people on the same page and at least have some understanding of what's going on. And then also an example of, you know, bad use of stats, I would say, or, you don't respect the stats. If you don't respect the stats, then, and what they're telling you as far as a base truth is concerned, then you're just manipulating and using them to back up what you believe is to be base truth. In other words, your own opinion. I'll talk about that. Uh, also, as part of the weekly commentary is sort of review, I want to talk about a clip that I've seen from Kevin Clark's podcast with Mitchell Schwartz, Schwartz talking about um, the most valuable offensive lineman he believes in the NFL. I think there's some interesting takeaways from that. And then lastly, on the Wharton Moneyball podcast this week, uh, Cade Massey, I would say friend of the pod, but I don't think he's actually been on this pod. I have interviewed him before, and I have spoken with him a number of times. Uh, Wharton professor, co-author of the groundbreaking Loser's Curse study on NFL draft value. He interviewed Luke Bourne, who has a history as an academic working with NBA data, worked for the Sacramento Kings for a while, kind of decided at that point that, you know, he has to be part of ownership in order to do things, which I think is a really good point. I kind of, I kind of feel similarly myself, although, you know, I'll never be part of ownership like, like he is. And he found some people uh, and some capital and Billy Bean and others to go ahead and purchase some teams, which then he could have influence on a couple of European soccer clubs, but he has some good clips. I'll, I'll share one clip from the interview that I thought was particularly good, but also talk about some other things that he said as part of that interview. And then of course we'll get into week six and your questions and everything else. If you have any questions, you can leave them in the comments here. I'm not going to necessarily get to them for a while in uh, on YouTube streaming, just entitled them with Q and a at the beginning. It'll help me sort through in case people start going back and forth about, you know, whether Lamar Jackson should be a running back or something like that in the comments. All right. First, we'll start with Thursday night. Not not, not a great game. Uh, I only watched the first half. Didn't seem like I missed that much in the second half. Although things may have gotten a little bit better offensively for the Broncos, but they couldn't get much worse based upon what was happening in the first half. Um, okay, so a few things that, that I think are important to talk about in this one. And let me go ahead for those of you watching here and bring up my advanced review of this game as you see i got uh travis kelsey on here as the main picture he was the man especially in the first half there with over 100 yards receiving in the first half and let's go through the the headline number so 19-8 final score uh i had it 26 to 19 which is you know a little bit more narrow not hugely more narrow um basically we're talking about adding nine points to the Broncos score and then adding seven points to the Chiefs score. Both teams were less impotent offensively than their final scores, even though you could say the Broncos are pretty impotent offensively. So that might be a bit of a, of a surprise, but let me just go into the wise here. So the wise um, success rate wise, the chiefs are actually over 50% success rate Broncos at 44.2%. I've seen some other metrics that have them closer to 45 each, but basically it was kind of close between the two teams. As far as their success rate is concerned, there wasn't really an advantage on third and fourth down. Both teams were bad though on third and fourth down. And that's what helped 
converting those. That's what helped hold down their their final scores. And we'll talk about that. Um, and then the Chiefs had a bit of a disadvantage here when it came to special teams and penalties. But the big thing is the turnover advantage that the Chiefs had in this game with two Russell Wilson interceptions and a fumble in there. Um, where Mahomes did have an interception also, but net-net, it was much more costly when it came to the Broncos' mistakes. Uh, So first of all, let's talk about the third and fourth down conversion success rate sort of things. Um, Okay, I think it's very difficult, and this is why I'll talk about this in a little bit with the Luke Bourne stuff and his interview, where he talks about in his interview that he likes to see the stats first because he believes, at least if they're well-maintained stats, and I think, I don't know, I'm sure whatever stats he's looking at with all the resources he has, he owns Zealous Analytics, also this big company where I think they have something like 60 employees crunching numbers, and that's a big part of crunching the numbers for the teams that he's a part owner of. So I'm sure he has better stats than I do. Okay, to look at more accurate, more ground truth sort of stats. But he believes the stats to be more ground truth than the game, than watching the game. I think that's also true. He says that he likes to watch the games for his own teams. Uh, One of the things that he does to help cut down on some of the noise and effects and stresses of the biases that human beings generally have is he looks at the stats first before he watches the game. Now I didn't do this for the chiefs Broncos games, but I have a kind of a good intuitive understanding of these things. So if you watched the game last night, you would just say, Oh my God, this Broncos offense is so, so bad. And in the first half, I'll give it to you. They didn't really stretch the field at all. Uh, I think Russell Wilson had something like a one and a half yard, a dot or something like that. Now we actually ended up with a larger, a bigger, a dot on the game than Patrick Mahomes. I mean, maybe we should discount that some because it was in, um, Effective garbage time, but still it happened. But what I think what we end up seeing a lot, and this comes also to some reactions I saw to the Jags bills game, like some very positive reactions to the Jags versus the bills in their London game last week, where, you know, it's just one team converting third downs and another team doesn't. And in this game, it was both teams not converting third down where when you watch that and a team, you know, takes a, sack on fourth and short or on third and short i think russ was taking some sacks just not completing passes you know it looks almost faded and it looks like some sort of fundamental um flaw in the team when you look at it on that in this one game basis when you look at this one game last night with this broncos offense in particular you would say you know what these guys can just never convert a third down they're just fundamentally broken because because of the results of what we saw in the game and the fact that they were 4 of 10 on third down. Actually, the Chiefs were 4 of 13, which I think is interesting. But the Broncos had much shorter third downs. They were just not converting these third downs. They had a 54% expected conversion rate on third down because of how short these third downs were. Um, so they were 14% under expectation. But anyway, so you're watching this, you're just like, man, this team just cannot convert. They're fundamentally that bad. But the reality is, No, they just had a bad game converting third downs. These very high leverage plays, these plays that allowed them to extend drives and score points. You convert a few of those in one direction versus another, and I'm only talking about a handful that really matters and has a huge impact. I mean, these third down conversions, the the delta on EPA are multiple points on each one of these. So if you convert a few more third downs than than you should have, all of a sudden we're talking about eight, nine more points in EPA than you would have just based upon a few plays. So again, I think people watching the game last night would have had this assumption that the Denver offense is completely broken um, versus the ground truth of the numbers is, Oh, you know what? 44% success rate, not good, not bad underperformed on third down, turned over the ball way too much, which, you know, is a problem. Turnovers is another thing where when you watch the game, you think, Oh man, like that had to be a turnover. It was such a bad play. These teams have to be so mistake prone. But the reality is, of course, you know, more than half of turnovers are just noisy, especially interceptions, especially fumble recovery luck. Such is something to keep in mind here for why my adjusted score has this as being a closer game than it may have seemed otherwise. 
Um, when we get into the offensive efficiency percentiles, these are just the straight up numbers. So they're going to include the turnovers. They're going to include the lack of third down. Uh, the Chiefs are still pretty good passing the ball. 67th percentile is their pass efficiency versus only 6th percentile in their run efficiency. Now that run efficiency includes a wacky fourth down fake field goal conversion attempt by Reed. Like the guy finally goes for it on fourth down and he decides to do some nonsense like that. Uh, like a tush push from two yards away from a yard and a half away, whatever it was like you have Patrick Mahomes, just use the offense people. Um, also in this game. And again, it didn't really matter in this particular game, but there were two other times that the chiefs had the ball fourth and three on the Broncos side of the field. Once they decided to kick a field goal, another time they decided to punt. You know, eh, I mean, they easily won this game, so not the biggest deal, but I don't like, you know, whatever. Andy Reid's being Andy Reid. That's what he does. Um, and if you look at kind of like all the plays in this game, you just see like red for the most impactful plays. So the most impactful plays, what I do is I look at the absolute value of EPA, uh, you know, gained or lost, the absolute value, and I rank order them. And if you look at the top 10 plays in the game, the top six and the top seven out of eight are all negative. So not great. All negative plays by EPA. You have two Russell Wilson interceptions, a Samaj P. Ryan fumble, which, you know, came somewhat late in the game. So I guess there was some like theoretical chance that the Broncos could come back, but they didn't even lose that much win probability on that one. Only 1.3% win probability lost because it was so late in the game. Uh, we have the Patrick Mahomes interception. We have the Noah Gray attempted tush push. You have a Russell Wilson sack on fourth and three. And then uh, you skip down a couple of plays and you have Kadarius Toney uh, rushing attempt on third and one that failed. Now, the most positive play of the game, despite the fact that there were so many throws to Travis Kelsey on the most positive play, and this is you know, like Patrick Mahomes doing his thing, was a scramble for uh, 15 yards on third and 11. Now, they're up 16 to nothing, so it didn't make that big of a difference from a win probability standpoint. But again, 2.6 EPA on that one scramble from Patrick Mahomes. So that's what he's, that he's good at. Uh, I think this was an unfortunate game perception-wise, but maybe fortunate for us who don't buy too much into Island game performances perception-wise for Russell Wilson and Sean Payton because everyone loves to dunk on both of these two. Like uh, I mentioned before, like you can basically just say whatever you want about Russell Wilson now and now Sean Payton too. Um, and it's all fair game to, to, to dunk on these guys. And it's probably like there's a bunch of people dunking on the fact that going into the game, people were pointing to Russell Wilson's stats versus Patrick Mahomes and saying, hey, he doesn't look that bad versus Patrick Mahomes. Now, some people are doing some bad use of stats, you know, quarterback rating, things that exclude sacks where Mahomes is so much, so much better than uh, Russell Wilson. But I will say, you know, it wasn't like the stats people were using were that awful as far as the differential between Wilson and Patrick Mahomes going into the game. All these things that people are dunking on because of this one Island game performance as if that was really encapsulate how they've been playing this year. And I get it. You know, Wilson has probably hasn't been as good as his stats and Patrick Mahomes has probably been better than his stats. That's definitely true. But still uh, going into the game, Wilson was ranked in the top 10 in EPA per play. I think he was eighth in EPA per play by my numbers. He, I've seen him lower some, somewhere else. I'm not sure what the differential is. He's going to fall. He's going to fall out of the top 10 after this game. But again, looking at the numbers going into this game, he was in the top 10. He was, you know, a few ranks below Mahomes, but not severely, severely below Mahomes. He was 16th in PFF passing grade. So not great, but only slightly worse than Justin Herbert by that same metric and better than Dak Prescott by that same metric. I think Mahomes was seventh or eighth. So Mahomes is not having an outstanding year by any by any means by these different metrics. So yeah, Russell Wilson wasn't just as good as Mahomes, but people acting like last night's performance was typical of what we've seen from Russell Wilson this year is also incorrect. Uh, this game by EPA per play, um, this is the worst game that Russell Wilson has had with the Broncos, period. So even going back to his dumpster fire of a 2022 season, he was actually worse in this game than he had been in any game during that season. So this was like the bottom, bottom 
range of outcomes for Wilson. But when people watch Island games, they say, oh, this is just like typical. Everything, we're just going to project everything, all of our uh, confirmation bias onto this one game. And again, well, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see. We'll see if they can turn things around or not. But how Wilson has been playing this year has been more similar to pre-2019 Wilson, where he had good efficiency, not great grading. For some reason in 2019 and 2020, his grading went through the roof. And I don't know why. Um, maybe he was really playing that much and throwing the ball that much better. Um, where his efficiency actually didn't go up that much. Like his EPA per play didn't go up that much, but his grading went up that much. And now he's fallen off back to a stance where he's kind of like good, not great EPA per play and middling grading, which is kind of where he was uh, for most of the early part of his career when he was efficient and they're doing well as a team with a good defense and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the overall numbers, Wilson lost 0.37 EPA per play. His completion percentage over expected. This is also a big issue. Negative uh, 12%. But again, his ADOT was 5.3. It ended up being 5.3. And that was a lot of chucking it up at the end there that didn't matter. But Patrick Mahomes, only four ADOT. So, you know, I still think there are things to worry about when it comes to the Chiefs offense. That may be a bigger takeaway to me somewhat than what even happened with the Broncos offense because the Broncos offense just fell apart with mistakes. But this Chiefs offense, I don't know, man. Four ADOT, Patrick Mahomes, he's kind of in the mid-range of the top 10 in EPA per play. Uh, he's doing that through rushing and scrambling, being able to co- contribute in that manner there and not making mistakes, but definitely not like a high-flying type of offense that you would hope for for the Chiefs going forward. So that's basically what I would take away from a lot of this game is, you know, good performance by the Chiefs defense, which has been better this year. A little bit worrying that the offense for the Chiefs is still struggling a bit and, you know, the Broncos, everything's falling apart, but probably not as bad as you would think based upon the numbers. Now, I'm going to start here with kind of some things that are going on during, during the week that I want to talk about. I'm going to start here with a Mitchell Schwartz quote. I don't want to go through the whole thing because it's long, but I'll share it from uh, Kevin Clark's Twitter here. That he, that he has it because he's interviewing him for his podcast with Omaha Productions. And uh, the, I'll just read out the text here. It says, I asked Mitchell Swartz, who is the most valuable lineman in football, as in which team system would falter the most without a guy? You know, I, like when you add these caveats on there, then I don't know, like who, which system would falter the most. Again, it's one of these like subjective things that like, let's just say who's the most valuable, like which team would score fewer points? How about that? without the lineman versus with the lineman. And his answer was Jason Kelsey. Um, so let's listen to some of this answer here, and you can tell me whether or not you you agree. But I'll give my, my spin on it. Just like if you take the puzzle piece away, nothing can happen. Who is it? I think it's Jason Kelsey. Um, I think everyone kind of thinks it's Trent Williams because left tackle is valuable, and we've seen all the cool highlights of what he can do. And for the Shanahan run scheme in particular, the technique he uses on the backside where he basically just like chops guys and dumps them and <laughs> pulls them by the, the back of the head. Uh, unfortunately, actually injured uh, Vander Esch this past week. Trent kind of did that in space. And unfortunately, Vander Esch kind of joined into Parsons there. And I think they both got hurt. Um, what he can do for that offense is fantastic. I think they can be successful without him. I think Philly is so diverse and they use Kelsey in so many different ways. And those third and fourth and one pushes are such huge leverage pieces. And I probably wouldn't have said this last year when they were the only team doing the push. And we just assumed that it was really easy and you just push the quarterback (laughs) over the top. But now we see other teams trying it and failing and getting guys injured on the play. And you realize like, Hmm, maybe there is something to having a center that might be 282 pounds, but he can uh, get underneath guys and get leverage and then being able to pull him. And obviously the hurts uh, aspect of what they yes, can do in space using him and so I do think he's kind of that puzzle piece and it's interesting because you look back historically like Teron Armstead to Miami if you again yeah. asked me this at the end of last year you might say him because the numbers with him in and him out are, are massively different but this year he's been hurt and they've still been rolling um, Tyron Smith was always that guy in Dallas where he goes out and they turn into a 3-13 and team and the offense can't succeed and uh, Dak starts looking depending on your view on Dak, uh, even more like Dak or even less like Dak. Um, But I do think for a guy who's been healthy and hasn't really shown that the offense will change when he's hurt because he hasn't been hurt, I think it's got to be Jason Kelsey. Okay, so let's talk about this answer here. Um, Let's talk about this answer here because 
I think it's like a great illustration of someone who's an expert, someone who has a lot of knowledge about something clearly like Mitchell Schwartz, you know, former, um, what was his deal? He never made it all pro or something like that, or he never made a pro bowl. I can't remember. It's one of those two things, even though, despite the fact that PFF have him, had him graded as like the best tackle, um, or giving up the fewest pressures at tackle multiple times. Now it was a right tackle. So we didn't get as much credit as being a left tackle there. Uh, but anyway, someone who is a, a great expert in an area who does a poor job, in my opinion, at translating expertise to essentially what is a prediction. Okay. If you're saying, if, if the question is, which team, you know, suffers the most by not having X player? And this is a lot of like, everyone's kind of in the prediction business when it comes to NFL analysis in reality. Because we're all like discussing things and what their impact will be or can be or who a player is currently is kind of like, what do you think next week? What's going to happen? If you're doing quarterback rankings, it's kind of like, how well are these guys going to perform as quarterbacks, do you think? In a way. Um, so this is very much a prediction because you're being asked, okay, let's a hypothetical situation. If you took player X out of the mix, what would have the biggest negative impact? So it's translating expertise to prediction where experts are generally very, very bad. And this is not just my opinion. It's been studied. Okay, Super Forecasters. The book Super Forecasters, if you haven't read it, uh, one of the big takeaways is that experts are actually the worst at making predictions because they overvalue generally their slice of expertise. You know, there's it's much more important to look at general base rates have that be the foundation of what you're doing, not specifics. General base rates, that's the foundation of what you're doing. Then study how often things deviate from those base rates and then make marginal choices and decisions off of those base rates to make a prediction about a particular thing. So what we have here is we have it flipped when it comes to what Mitchell Swartz is talking about here. And this is what experts do. They flip things. Um, the base rates, and not only like if you want to look at on-off splits, which are very noisy, and you know, I kind of made fun of some of the Tehran Armstead on-off splits that were being shared earlier this season bef as he got injured before he before they played without his injury because um they were a little silly. You know, they were based on 50-something plays from last season to his performance with and without Tehran Armstead. Uh, most of those plays coming against the San Francisco 49ers in San Francisco. Um, even the the the, the uh, Tyron Smith on-off splits, I think they're meaningful, but again, it's very noisy. So you don't want to read too much into it. Like they're overstating the case, but I do, but you will find generally, and I found this looking at on-off splits for players, which help build up my, what I call um, NFL plus minus, my valuation metric. What you do find is generally the base rate, the underlying general truth is that tackles when they're off of the field, when you lose them, provide a lot more value than guards. Guards actually provide a lot more value than centers. Okay, so that's your base rates. And the people in the book Super Forecasters who do the best job of making predictions, what they do is they, they're good at like studying how do you make a good prediction. And how you make a good prediction is you rely heavily on the base rates. So it's not that a center couldn't be the most valuable player. Like it's impossible that a center is the most valuable player or a guard. It's just the evidence weighs heavily, heavily, heavily against that from a base rate perspective. So you need to have overwhelming knowledge about something, totally overwhelming knowledge to be, have any confidence that it would be the case that it would not be a tackle. And we have a lot of great tackles in the NFL that you can choose from here, that it would not be a tackle in this game. That's just how it works. Uh, overvaluing the unique circumstances and your unique knowledge. And in this case, definitely overvaluing the tush push thing or the brotherly shove or whatever you want to call it. Definitely overvaluing, like, I get it. They're converting at a high rate, but part of their conversion rate over the NFL is probably luck, right? They probably just have more luck when they're doing it. And again, if you're talking about how they're able to convert better than the rest of the NFL, another part might just be they have a lot of practice doing it. They've been doing it and executing it for a while. So not specific to Jason Kelsey. Um, the third thing is like they're blocking generally, you know, it's not just Kelsey here. There's, you know, guards that are in there. There's, there's tackles, there's guys pushing from the back. There's other people. So Kelsey is like one of these factors. 
And the last thing is like Jalen Hurts, right? Jalen Hurts is 230 pounds, 6'2 or 6'1 or something like that. He's basically built like a running back. So if you're going to say like, if you were just going to look at this and forget about looking at technique, forget about even knowing anything about Jason Kelsey or or Jalen Hurts as runners or blockers, if you're just going to look at them and say, let's compare Jason Kelsey from a like physical ability standpoint to other centers in the NFL, what's the delta there? And their abilities to execute a push, a, a tush push, at least theoretically, just looking at them and their and their build and their size and their metrics and everything else versus Jalen Hurts and other quarterbacks. I mean, Jalen Hurts is a much bigger difference between him and most quarterbacks. I mean, there are other athletic quarterbacks in the NFL, but a 230 pound guy who's built like a running back is different. Is 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 higher up, kind of like the distribution of who would be good at tush tush pushes than Jason Kelsey is for other centers. So you have all that combined. Um, so I just thought it was like a really, really good example here of how experts are very knowledgeable in what they know. It's very interesting that they could have an opinion on Kelsey and how he fits into the scheme. But what they tend to do, and again, this is like, it's more exciting content or it's more interesting content for people to hear a well-explained um, counterintuitive take that goes against all that we know about you know football value when it comes to these different positions it's kind of interesting but the reality is it's, it's just probably not true um and it's 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 very unlikely very very unlikely and probably a very poor prediction on his point or poor take on his point as to who would be taken away now you might say like who when they're taken away has a bigger impact than you'd expect based upon their position yeah you could go for jason kelsey there then you go for Jason Kelsey there. But if you're going to say like any offensive lineman, this and that, no, I'm sorry. There's just too much overwhelming evidence that it's not going to be the case for a center, even a center as great as just Jason Kelsey. I mean, the guy's kind of near the end of his career too. So I'm sure he's still performing well. He's still very fast, everything else. But you're basically like saying this guy's been the best player in the NFL over the last 12 years or whatever he's been in. No, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not buying it. So again, experts, very good at what they do. Not so good at making predictions. But we we often ask them, as part of the content ecosystem here in the NFL, we often ask experts, former players, former coaches to make opinions, to have opinions on things that they haven't really studied. And they're not, they're, they're not really expert. They're not good at making predictions. And, and that's the content game. So again, when you see things like that, it's an interesting note. It's something to think about, but trust me, if, I don't know, Trent Williams or one of these great left tackles is missing from a game versus Jason Kelsey, you know, there's probably not any effect on like point spreads or things like that necessarily that much. But I would adjust, if you're going to make any micro adjustments to the numbers, I would do so more for Trent Williams than I would do for Jason Kelsey just based upon the evidence that we have. All right. Second thing, and I, I talk about this a lot in the adjusted quarterback efficiency numbers that I put out about rankings quarterback rankings i know it's a little bit like tedious the quarterback ranking game i mean i gotta get into it um i gotta get into it too sorry i apologize for everyone that i gotta i gotta get into it but i think i do a good job of like coming up with actual like good content for this sort of stuff so i have my adjusted quarterback efficiency rankings i called it luck based quarterback rankings i just been focused on that i don't have open scores which i was getting from espn to measure that sort of stuff but I did add another element, the yards after catch, which it's interesting because um, there's been some people who have done work on this one. Uh, trying to, the name escapes me now, but I know someone has done work on Yak where it's mostly like a receiver thing as opposed to a quarter. No, it's mostly a quarterback thing as opposed to receiver thing, a scheme quarterback thing as opposed to receiver thing. And it's it's highly variable. Now, I think there are certain guys like Debo Samuel who you could probably say is like a yak monster. Guys who are good at forcing missed tackles are good at yak. Um, but there's an element of luck to that too. So I have my rankings where I'm adjusting for uh, yak over expectation based upon target location, drops, interceptions, defensive pass interference, fumble recovery, strength of schedule, and weather. So we look at all these things here. And the question has been like Brock Purdy, Brock Purdy's the guy, where does he belong? This and that. So if he, he falls from being kind of head and shoulders above everyone else being over half a point EPA per play versus Josh Allen, who is like 
5.3 EPA per play. So that's a massive gap. Like the big, it's as big of a gap as it is between Josh Allen and uh, I don't know, someone who's in the 12th sort of 13th sort of range for EPA per play is the difference between one and two. But when you adjust for all these different things, Purdy actually slots in a little bit below Allen. And Allen's kind of having like a sneaky good season this year, I think because they're three and two. Um, they lost this game to the Jaguars, where I believe they were the fundamentally better team last last week. Um, he's been a bit sneaky there. So it kind of slots in Purdy between Mahomes, who again is having a not quite a Mahomesian sort of year, a little bit off year. And Josh Allen there with these adjustments. And again, that doesn't mean you have to like rank Purdy as the second best quarterback in the NFL. But it's at least a way to get like real context on how well he's played this season with some luck adjustments to it, some concrete luck adjustments to it, because, um, and this is, this is why I think my, and again, I have a, I have a table here at the end, again, subscribe to unexpectedpoints.substack.com to get it. I have a table here, which has the exact numbers for how much he's losing for yards after catch, you know, advantage interceptions, drops, fumbles. He's getting some big advantages here and the total adjustment that's being made here. And you can also like theoretically look and say, well, if Purdy was actually, let's say, the 10th best quarterback in the NFL, how many more, how off would I have to be? Like, how many more expected points would he have to lower down? It's like, oh, he'd have to lower down by another, you know, 15 expected points in different ways. And he's already, you know, so much lower than everyone else to a second, losing 16 expected points added by all these adjustments. And Purdy is up around 35. So he's just like an enormous adjustment. So he definitely deserves an enormous adjustment. But just saying he deserves an enormous adjustment isn't enough to justify like any ranking. Okay. And I think that was the problem with what Steve Ruiz over at the ringer was trying to do in his explanation for why his ranking last week was 25th on Purdy. It's 22nd. Now after that fantastic performance last week for Purdy, like why he's there, he, he makes the argument of saying, okay, his accuracy hasn't been that great. Uh, he has just as many turnover worthy throws as Jordan love and Sam Howell, but those two have 12 interceptions and he has zero. Um, yeah, I, I agree. He Brock Purdy has not been as good as his numbers, but it's not like you don't make a compelling argument that he belongs ranked 22nd in the NFL by just proving he hasn't been as good as his numbers. Like that's not enough. You could be not as good as your, as your numbers. You could be the number one efficiency quarterback in the NFL, not as good as your numbers and still deserve the number one ranking. You could deserve the number two ranking. You could deserve the number 10 ranking. You could deserve the number 15 ranking. Like there's all kinds of rankings you could have. And again, I think a lot of the pushback with Purdy isn't that Ruiz isn't the concept that he hasn't been as good as his grading. I mean, I, I, or his numbers. I mean, I'm saying he's not good, as good as his numbers. Nobody's bothering me. It's that you're saying that he hasn't been as good of his numbers to such a degree that I still have, that you still have him ranked below Ryan Tannehill, Derek Carr, uh, Daniel Jones. And going into last week, lower than Mac Jones also. That's kind of the problem. Uh, but one thing I want to focus on here is like bad use of stats. Again, when you don't respect the stats like me, <laughs> like I respect, maybe I put it on a pedestal. You know, you put it on a pedestal, put the stats on a pedestal. Maybe I'm doing that a little bit too much. But I do think it's closer to the ground truth than a lot of people's opinions. But when you don't respect the stats, then you're, you know, you're willing to do kind of anything with the stats to make your point. And I think what Ruiz does here, whether conscious or not, um, is he's he messing with the stats a little bit here. First of all, this was this is thing, this explainer that he had came out with that was published. And I'm using this as an example of what a lot of people do with stats, right? Not to say that Ruiz is unique in this, but he's publishing this on October 11th. So it's two days or at least a day and a half after PFF had upgraded its its grading. But yet he uses PFF's grading from the week before when before Purdy had this great game. So he says that Purdy was ranked 22nd in passing grade going into the Dallas game. So before the Dallas game. And he had him ranked at 25th. So, hey, you know, not that big of a difference. Well, the problem is, you know, if you look at this week's ratings after the game has happened, you know, the most current thing, the, the differential is wider. PFF has him ranked 12th in passing grade versus Ruiz's ranking at 22nd. Um, and if you look at his overall offensive grade, which includes his rushing value that he's brought and other things that he's brought, which presumably is part of Ruiz's rankings. Again, I think like Ruiz is using 
probably using passing grade instead of offensive grade, maybe because it looks better for his analysis. Like there's at least there's at least the, the worry there. You know, Purdy is eighth right now in his offensive grade. So it's really like eighth offensive grade for PFF. If you want to use PFF as like, look, PFF agrees with me. Well, no, PFF has him eighth in offensive grade this year versus your 22nd ranking after last week. Not that close. Now, just because he's been eighth this year doesn't mean you need to have him ranked eighth, but it is, uh, it, it's it's a weaker case, it's a weaker stats-based case than what you're trying to use in your explanation. Um, I'll also say in his explanation, when he uses that 22nd passing grade, maybe this was an oversight, but, you know, he's not filtering out guys like Mike White who only have two dropbacks and guys like Bailey Zappi who have 10 dropbacks. So, like, those two guys are ranked higher by this 22nd ranking. Is that an oversight? Or, you know, are you are you, you messing with the stats a little bit there? You know, purposefully just adding everyone in there in order to get him 22nd instead of 20th? Maybe. Uh, but anyway, I think this is, like, a clear example of maybe it's not totally nefarious use of stats here. Maybe there is just some oversight. Maybe he wrote this up before the week started, all that sort of stuff. But I mean, clearly the better comparison, if you want to talk about PFF grading would have been his eighth ranked PFF offensive grade this week versus your 22nd ranking this week. So not 22nd versus 25th where the 22nd was not even really 22nd and it was only passing grade and not offensive grade and it included guys with two dropbacks and everything else. So again, I think most of the bad use of stats often comes from people who try to downgrade the use of stats versus their, their eye test. But more importantly with this is like, you got to have a systematic way of figuring this out. You're not going to really convince that many people by just saying, hey, trust me. He's been worse than his number, so he belongs at X ranking. No, that's just just not how it works, and that's something that you got to avoid in analysis. And why I try to be explicit about everything, but I have faults. So if you think see any faults on my on my stuff, please let me know. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is this Luke. Bo- Before I get into any of the week uh, six stuff, I'm just going to talk about week six briefly. I mean, I put it on there on the YouTube, but you know, got to get those eyeballs. Um is this Luke Bourne interview with um, with Wharton Moneyball, the Wharton Moneyball podcast. So it's a podcast hosted by a few different professors over at the Wharton School of, of Business, although they are uh, stats professors here also. Um, I clipped something here, which I shall share where it's Luke Bourne, and I thought this was the best part. So this is starting about 45 minutes into the episode. There's a lot of background stuff that he talks about, which is kind of interesting. But I think like the stuff that he talks about, specifically about his ownership and what he's doing, um, there's a couple of tutors. So tutor, let me just go. So he's part of this thing called, I want to make sure I'm getting it correct here, Red Bird Capital, I believe. Red Bird Capital, yes. So is the investment firm that he's a part of uh, they're powered by this Zealous Analytics, which he also owns, uh, co-owns with someone else. And if you look at Redbird Capital, AC Milan is the big one now that they've had it for a shorter amount of time. So for those who don't know, AC Milan is one of the big three, I would say, teams in Serie A, so the, the top-level Italian league. One of the big three teams there, probably the second biggest team next to Juventus historically. Um, in Serie A. So, I mean, Napoli is pretty good now, but Napoli traditionally has not been that great. And they also, although it's not, is Toulouse still on here? Toulouse might not even, they might've had to divest from Toulouse. This thing happened. Toulouse was a, was in the second tier. So League Two, League Du, as they would say in uh, France, they were part of the second tier league. They got promoted up to League Un, which is the, or League One, which is the top French flight league. And they won this like in-season tournament where it's a it's a single elimination tournament between all the different French teams. They won, which puts them into one of the European tournaments. So now that they qualify for one of the European tournaments and AC Milan is also in the European tournaments, they could theoretically play each other. And I think that requires either ownership divestment or separating like firewalls between everything where um, where Luke is no longer working with Toulouse 
at all in the French league, but it, but it is with AC Milan, uh, which is again a huge historic team. Used to be owned by um, Silvio Berlusconi. For those who know Berlusconi, former um, is it president or prime minister over there? I'm not even sure. I think president of Italy. Uh, maybe prime minister of Italy uh, before that being a media magnate who then who moved on to that uh, RIP. I think he's, I think he's passed away um, for those who, whether he deserves RIP or not. I'm sure people have different opinions on that, but anyway, he used to own AC Milan for a while. But again, big rivalry with Juventus over there. But anyway, so, so he's talking in this interview, I'm, I'm rambling here. He's talking in this interview about like different lessons he has. And he says, one of the things that he, he does is, he doesn't watch the games live. He doesn't watch the games live. Instead, he wants to review the stats and get the ground truth, what he believes are closer to ground truth first, and then watch the game. So here's here's the um, – let me share the clip that I shared on Twitter with, with y'all here. There, there's, a, there's a tremendous variety of ways that we can be biased when we're, when we're placing values on on – athletes on a pitch with all these sort of dynamics that are going on, all the emotions that are going on. And as much as possible, I'm trying to a let a, let the data be sort of the foundation and then make sure that when we're actually watching the video and using our eye on top of it, primarily by the way, not necessarily to like say to get something necessarily on top of the data, but oftentimes we're sort of watching it to say, is there ways that the data could be misleading here? Mm-hmm. Well, but for the most part, you want to be doing that in as rational a state as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so so that was the clip where he's talking about it. I thought it was interesting too that he said like the main benefit of watching the game isn't necessarily to say you're learning a whole lot about like what happened versus the game getting the context on it but instead for him for someone who's really trying his hardest to refine and has his team of people constantly working on the data metrics is to say oh like what what what's happening that we might be missing in the data and it doesn't like change our opinion necessarily on what happened in the game but it's like our methodology for collecting and analyzing and producing insights from the data may be off and that's what you're getting from it, but still getting that ground truth from the game. And I thought it was really, really interesting because you're talking about certain plays like stick out in our mind a lot. And again, third down plays, I would say for the NFL, stick out in our mind a lot as far as influencing our opinion on how overall successful a team has been or not. But we might ignore all these successful plays they had where if they just failed to convert on, on these third downs that are high leverage and kill drives, where in reality is like, you know what? They were actually okay. They just couldn't convert these third downs. But in our minds, those highly charged, highly emotional plays, highly high leverage plays are going to stand out much, much more. So I thought that was really, really interesting. He has another part in the interview. Um, and I don't know. Should I try to, I was going to try to actually find it, but I don't want to search through here because I don't have it clipped off. But basically I thought it was a really interesting thing where he's talking about like what affects, what sort of edge, what's the best edge that you can get. And he kind of says something, which is really funny where he's, he says, well, you know, good luck is like always the best edge. Now it's not an edge that you can necessarily um, harness and work towards, but it's kind of like that truism of you'd rather be lucky than good. He agrees with that. And I agree with that. And I think that's just respecting the value of luck. Most people just actually don't give enough credit to luck. So you think it's, you might think it's weird that a, an analyst would say that your biggest edge is luck, something you can't control, but that's really just having humility, honestly, like no matter what sort of edges that you could produce from an analytical standpoint and add to a team, it's not going to have as big of an impact as luck for a team and luck can last a season. Luck can last two seasons. Luck can last three seasons. Good luck versus bad luck. That's going to be the most important determinant of results is luck. Thing is you can't control luck. So the things you can control, that's, that's what we have to focus on here. But I did think it was interesting that at least he recognized and said explicitly, like if I was going to, if there's one edge that I could have, I would want to have the luck edge. If I could have any edge possible even though it has nothing to do with my work 
what I can control, everything else. Like I would rather have the luck edge than anything else when it, in terms of winning more and having better results. And that's undoubtedly true. And you have to respect the variance. Another thing, respecting your lack of control is part of being an analytical thinker. All right. Let's actually get into the rest of week six here. I have my numbers that I've cranked via power rankings. You can get the power rankings data from the Google subscriber sheet for unexpected points. Uh, or you can kind of like look at the visualizations I have in my power rankings article every week and try to try to figure out what's going on there. Um, so what I end up doing in this one is I have the spread that I'm pulling here, which is hopefully correct on NFL faster versus my estimations for the value of these teams point differential value over an average team on a neutral field. I make home field adjustments. They adjust slightly based upon the location, but not a whole lot. Mine is still, you know, between like 0.8 and 0.14 points, I would say. Uh, maybe that's too much by some people's estimation. Some people think home field advantage is gone. I don't believe so. But anyway, travel, other things come into play in there. But it's not a huge deal there. And of course, you have neutral field like Tennessee and Baltimore this week. Where Tennessee is uh, putatively the the home team, but they're not, you know, they're not actually the home team in in London. And then I, I compare I compare those differentials versus the spread. You know, you got to look at uh, outcome distributions based upon being around what what are actual scores. You know, like moving a half a point from two and a half to three to three and a half is a much bigger deal than from. Uh, than a pick to half a point to one point and so on. Uh, and then try to compare them and say, ah, oh, you know, well, what might be interesting? What are we missing here? Maybe in the market. And again, the market can be very different from public perception also. So the first thing that jumps out, of course, is the Browns Niners game, but no Deshaun Watson. So these are really tough to figure out. Now, Dorian Thompson Robinson is not going to start. It looks like it's going to be PJ Walker or Philip Walker. I don't know what he, what he wants to go by at this point. So what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, it's a 10 points. San Francisco's favored by 10 points in Cleveland. Uh, I'm a little bit lower on San Francisco and a little bit higher on Cleveland generally. And that doesn't really have to do with my highness on uh, highness. I don't know if that works there. My, uh, my elevated opinion of the Browns is not really Watson related necessarily. It's slightly Watson related. Um, so him being gone there, I would have this spread like two and a half points, maybe three points, you know, conservative, three points, San Francisco, three points, if Watson was playing. So is Watson worth a touchdown? Is he worth seven points mm, over PJ Walker? Maybe. I mean, Walker, you know, he hasn't been in the system for that long, this and that. They just brought, kind of brought him in and elevated him. Maybe. I don't know. It's kind of a toss-up, but I might still like the Browns a little bit there, honestly, as 10 points, just because I'm a little bit of a hater when it comes to the Niners and how good they are. It's funny. You have a lot of people who were like, you got to have the Niners number one team in the NFL, blah, 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 blah. And then they'll also be very skeptical of Brock Purdy. It's like, you know, pick a side, buddy. It kind of matters how skeptical you are or not of Brock Purdy. Um, also playing on the road, you know, playing in Cleveland. I think it'll be interesting to see how well Brock Purdy plays in these conditions. Um, okay, going back to London. So the line is four points for Baltimore. I'm low on Baltimore, but I'm kind of low on Tennessee too this year. Uh, my adjusted spread would be more like two points. So, or two and a half. So it's, a, it is above the three that I would have it at. That three is a big, big demarcation there. Um, I'm not really happy though about their approach to this game when it comes to, the Titans and the Ravens, because the word on the streets is that the Ravens have been there since Tuesday, I think. And Tennessee is like flying in now. Well, what you doing there, guys? You got to acclimate. Acclimation is important. Uh, probably helped the Jaguars, the fact that they had been in London for a full week. They played back-to-back -back games versus the, the Bills. That's probably an underplayed point in that game. Although I think the Bills were kind of better anyway. Um, so I don't know. I wouldn't go either way on this, but my numbers, just the pure numbers without factoring in this travel ir irregularity, which I may be overweighting, um, says take the Titans and the points. Um, what else we got here? Chicago bears. Eh, I don't know. 
three-point underdogs at home against the Vikings. No Justin Jefferson, which is probably overrated in some people's minds, but not by the spread, it doesn't seem. I don't know. I, I can't, that's gross. Okay. Um, Panthers, this is also gross. 13.5-point underdogs to the Dolphins. Holy Lord. So the thing about the Dolphins is kind of interesting is that Tua's been low-key not great the last couple of weeks. Their success rate, while very, very, very high, is not nearly as high as their efficiency. Their rushing efficiency is like seventh, eighth in the NFL by by passing. They would, So they're so much better. They're number one in rushing efficiency. But they're so good that they would be like the seventh best passing offense in the NFL based on their rushing efficiency. I mean, Devon Achan, what that matters or not, him being there, I don't know necessarily. Maybe just give more to Mostert. Maybe he can hold up. If Mostert gets, gets injured, then I, then I think there are some problems there. Jeff Wilson Jr. has been pretty good. He can step in there. Um, but just naturally, they're not going to continue at that sort of level. So I think Miami, while they're pretty high up in my rankings, not high enough to justify that type of point spread. And I think Panthers, I don't know, Bryce Young's turning the ball over a lot which is not good with the low upside of that offense. But I think he's been, you know, okay versus maybe some people's opinion of him so far this year. So I'm intrigued, but it's one of those games where, you know, 13 and a half is a college football type of spread. So I'm not getting too, too into it. Um, What else do we have here? Okay. I can't do Bill's giants. I'm not touching that one because that's 14 and a half. Yikes. <laughs> These spreads are so big that my, my numbers always love these college football spreads, betting on the underdogs. Um, anything else? Oh, oh, boy, this one's kind of – this one is so gross. Jets, Eagles, so seven. Is there seven and a half available out there? Let me, let me look at this one here. Uh, Got to find it. If there's a seven and a half available here, maybe I could um, – plug my nose and and bet the um the jets in this one because that would be no nah, it doesn't look like there are any seven and a halves out there it's all sevens across the board so i don't know jets plus seven at home i mean i hate zach wilson he's horrible but um philly is kind of like rounding into form but their defense i don't know the jets defense is definitely legit and i think the philly defense while they got some sacks there at the end of the game I don't know if they're quite as good as people think. So maybe a little bit lower on Philly than some others. And I don't know if everything's been turned around after a couple of good performances, but that would be the other one that I would look at. Not excited though about that one either. All right. I'm going to let everyone go. Hopefully you enjoyed some of the, the rants here, some of the reviews, some of the for recreational purposes only bets that I might be uh, sprinkling this weekend. Uh, Again, any questions for me, hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Cole, triple underscore, of course, subscribe to, unexpectedpoints.subsec.com. Otherwise, I'll be back on the channel here, live streaming Monday morning to review all of the week six action. Enjoy the weekend, everybody. Take it easy.